This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. To read her is to be reminded of a standard. That's how the philosopher Iris Murdoch describes Simone Weil, a French writer and activist who wrote most of her works in the early and middle parts of the 20th century. If that name sounds familiar, it's because I've mentioned her in passing a few times on this show, and I've wanted to dedicate an episode to her since we started our Philosopher series last year. And now we're finally doing it, and I'm excited for it because I think Simone Weil is one of the great philosophers of the 20th century, and she isn't as well-known as she ought to be. She's also hard to pin down. She died very young at the age of 34, and she had many political and philosophical identities in her short life. She was a radical Marxist, a factory worker, a labor organizer, even a Catholic mystic. She was ultimately a woman who thought deeply and lived her philosophy in a way very few people do. And because of that, she is, in my opinion, one of the most remarkable human beings I've encountered, in person or on the page. And I think there's a lot to be learned from her ideas and her example, not just about the nature of reality and truth, but more importantly, about what it means to live with and care about other people. I'm Sean Ailing, and this is The Gray Area. Today's guest is Robert Zaretsky. He's a history professor at the University of Houston. You may remember him from another episode we did on Albert Camus. Robert is the author of several great books, all of which are about people he admires. The one he wrote about Simone Weil is called The Subversive Simone Weil, A Life in Five Ideas. We began our conversation by discussing what makes Weil's approach to philosophy unlike anyone else's, and why that's a very good thing. There are various ways in which I think we can understand philosophy and the philosophical life. There's the sort of philosophy that is done in most university departments of philosophy nowadays, 
And it's the philosophy, it's the sort of philosophy that presents the history of the discipline, that teaches logic, that teaches the tools of analysis when it comes to language, when it comes to various statements or actions we take in our lives. But what strikes me about philosophy departments is that those who teach in these departments, Sean, and they're good people, they're my colleagues, by and large, for these professional philosophers, at the end of the day, they put down their books, they put down their dry markers and, and erasers, and they go about their lives, as do their students, as if what was said, what was taught, what was discussed was, was uniquely for the classroom or uniquely for an article that they're writing, but that it has no implications for the lives that they're living. That philosophy has become, over time, a discipline that informs us, that informs students about the past of that discipline and provides the tools so that you become proficient in that discipline. But that wasn't what philosophy was at the outset. There's been remarkable work done by a school of historians of philosophy, especially ancient philosophy. And the first name that comes to my mind is Pierre Hadot, the late professor of history of philosophy who taught at the Collège de France. And Hadot argued over a series of books in the 1970s and 80s that for the ancients, philosophy wasn't a matter of informing one's mind. Instead, it was a matter of forming one's mind. You went to a particular school of philosophy. You joined, for example, an Epicurean school or a Stoic school or an Aristotelian school or a Platonist school. And you did so with the aim of not informing yourself, but of forming yourself, of changing your life, that you lived philosophy, and that if the school failed in preparing you to change your life, then, well, it wasn't a true philosophical education. And in so many ways, Simone Weil hearkens back to that earlier understanding of philosophy, that it wasn't an academic discipline. It was a discipline for our lives so that we could live better lives. Better lives, not just for ourselves, but equally important, better lives for those around us. Well, and the examples here uh, for Ve are endless. I mean, this is someone who goes to the front lines of the Spanish Civil War. This is someone who labored alongside workers in factories. This is someone who helped organize unions. This is someone who volunteered to teach factory workers philosophy and literature on the weekends. This is someone who over and over again subjected herself to suffering out of solidarity with other human beings. No, you're absolutely right about that. And for example, when she decides to go to work in 
a series of factories in 1934, 1935. She had before that, Sean, taught at a series of lycées. We have to keep in mind that Simone Weil was the product of a bourgeois upbringing, a well-to-do upbringing, where her parents were able to give both her and her brother, André Vey, one of the great mathematical minds of the 20th century, everything they needed in order to flourish. And both of them flourished. Simone Weil went to the very best school of higher learning in France, the École Normale Supérieure, which is sort of a mashup of our Harvard and MIT. She graduated at the top of her class. And as was the case with graduates from the École Normale Supérieure, they were automatically assigned upon graduation to positions in either other universities or at French high schools, the lycée. And she taught for the next three years at three different lycées, moving from one provincial city to another. But at the end of those three years, as she told one of her students, Anne Reynaud, she realized that this wasn't real life, that she had to put aside her teaching in order to begin living. And it's at that moment that in 1934, when the Depression is really beginning to take hold in France, it strikes France later than it does the rest of Europe, um, she manages to find a series of jobs in the Paris region. And she wants to know what it means to work, what it means to live the sort of life that so many of her fellow men and women lived. And uh, what she discovers is, is alarming. You mentioned she graduates in the top of her class. And if memory serves, the number two person, the number two graduate in that class is none other than Simone de Beauvoir, who we've also done a show about on this podcast. And there's, I didn't know this until I encountered it in your book, but they knew each other, obviously. And there was a conversation between Simone Bay and de Beauvoir. And de Beauvoir is talking about how the, you know, the aim of the, their aim as philosophers is to find a reason for people's existence. We got to give them some meaning, some reason for being, as it were. And Simone says to her, well, it's easy to see you've never gone hungry. And in that exchange right there, it tells you everything you need to know about where Vey's head is at and where the rest of <laughs> her colleagues' heads are at. Like she is interested in, in life and living and suffering and not in, in proofs and logic and mere theory. And as we'll get into, that, that is really what separates her from, from um, her peers. It does. And it's not as if the existentialists that Simone de Beauvoir, Jean-Paul Sartre, or Albert Camus, about whom we've already conversed, were uninterested in, in engagement. That's one of the tenets of existentialism, to be engaged, to be situated in your time, and become an actor in your time. But Simone Weil, and, and this is something that the Beauvoir understood after this brief exchange, because after, after that observation made by Weil, she more or less turned her back and walked away from de Beauvoir. She had nothing more to say to de Beauvoir. I think de Beauvoir, at this point, you know, existentialism wasn't yet a thing when they had this exchange. This was the early 1930s. And I can't help but believe that 
de Beauvoir grew from this experience and in part made her the engaged intellectual that she was going to become later in life. There are two big, very obviously connected ideas that I do want to really unpack a little bit while I have you. And these are Vey's notions of affliction and attention, both of which I think you have already alluded to. And I want to start with affliction because I think this anchors her her moral indignation, really, and her philosophical action later. So tell me about what she was trying to capture with this word. What, what did affliction mean? Well, strictly speaking, affliction is the usual English translation of the French le malheur. Sometimes le malheur is translated as suffering, but when translators instead plump for affliction, what they're trying to convey is that Simone Weil understood something that is deeper than mere suffering. I shouldn't use mere. Suffering is always a terrible thing. But by affliction, she meant that state that human beings are driven to by forces outside of their control. And when those forces are so persistent and so oppressive that the state of malheur or affliction means that our very humanity has been suppressed, if not eradicated, that we are no longer human beings, that we no longer can speak of ourselves as selves, but that we become, as she writes in one of her most read essays, namely the Iliad or the Poem of Force, that we become things. And this is an insight that develops over the course of the 1930s, Sean. For example, it's her experience at the factories in Paris, and she records these experiences in her factory journal, which even today makes for extraordinarily unsettling reading. And also in her essay, La Condition Ouvrière, The Worker's Condition, or The Condition of the Working Class, a work that no one less than Hannah Arendt thought was one of the most important works on the nature of labor um, uh, that was written in the 20th century. And she observes while working at this factory or these factories that the principal consequence is that she cannot think that the very nature of this kind of labor. And it is labor, it's not work. It's a distinction that Arendt makes in the human condition. When we work on something, we are in control of the process. We're there from beginning to end, and we are shaping something in the world. But labor is something that comes into existence with 
modern technology, with industrial industrialization of the late 19th century, we become more or less cogs in a machine rather than the makers of machines. So she's a laborer alongside other laborers in these factories. And she's trying to think about what is happening. And as she realizes, and she records this in her factory journal, she really can't think about it. Because in order to survive, in order to bring that paycheck home and feed one's family, you have to stop thinking. And once we stop thinking, what's left of our humanity? We aren't recognizably human any longer. And so it's beginning with her experience in the factories and her realization that what's at play in the factories beyond, say, the logic of capitalism, the logic of industrialization, is what she calls force. And force plays this role in the social world, in our relations with one another, what gravity plays in the physical world. Namely that it's everywhere and no one can control it. So what she understands during her stint in the factories, Sean, is that not only is she subjected to force, but those who believe that they control force, not just the foremen, but the owners of the factories, they too are subject to force. We are all creatures of force. None of us, Simone Weil understands, masters force. And then she takes this notion from the factories And it plays out yet in other ways when she goes, as you've mentioned, in 1936, she goes to Spain to fight on behalf of the Republicans during the Spanish Civil War. And she sees how force plays out, not just with the fascists under the command of Franco, but even on the Republican side, where the logic of war turns those on the side fighting for the good, fighting for the republic, into those who believe they control force, but they are also subject to force. And they become as indifferent to the quality of other lives as those on Franco's side becomes. What you're saying here is that, or what Vey is saying is that we're all disfigured by force, regardless of where we are in the hierarchy or whether we wield power or, or suffer under the thumb of someone else's power. And the really deeper point here, if I understand it, is that we are ensnared in, in a system, a way of relating to people and things. And we, as people, become thoughtless instruments of that system. We reinforce it. We reproduce it, we inhabit it, and that's force. And that, I think, is what she means when she says that human beings are reduced to things. Absolutely. We are all not just complicit, but we're all implicated in the unfolding of force. And this becomes even more manifest 
after 1936 and her short experience in Spain with the Nazi invasion of France. She's living in Paris at the time with her parents. And in June of 1940, she and her parents are on the last train out of Paris for the South. They become part of what the French call l'exode, the exodus, the great exodus of civilians as well as soldiers who had basically abandoned their guns, who were fleeing south in order to stay ahead of the German advance. There were millions on the road. It's thought that about 8 to 10 million Frenchmen and women were on the roads making their way towards the Mediterranean, which is what Simone Weil does with her parents, and they make their way to Marseille. And that experience informs her writing of the essay that I've just mentioned, The Iliad or the Poem of Force. It's one of her few works that actually deals with a literary text. And it's remarkable because though she focuses on the Iliad, which in many ways was her Bible, it was the work we needed no other work, they believed, in order to remind us of who we are than the Iliad. She discusses the ways in which the heroes of the Homeric epic are no less subject to force. And it's not just, for example, those who are being slaughtered by Achilles during his rage following the death of his partner Patroclus, but it's Achilles himself. He understands, they tells us, that he is also subject to force. In fact, there's this remarkable moment that she emphasizes in the essay where he's about to kill one of the Trojans who pleads for his life and Achilles says, in essence, why are you begging for your life like Haean? I, like you, am mortal, and one day soon, I too will know your fate. And then, of course, he kills Lycaon, and Lycaon literally becomes a thing. His body becomes a corpse. And she can't help but reflect on this notion of force because history will not allow her to do otherwise. Living in a time of revolutionary ferment, the rise of totalitarian powers to the East, what's an individual to do? What is a thinking person to do? And this is something that becomes ever more preoccupying for Simone Weil. Coming up after the break, why is attention so important to Simone Weil? Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. 
Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canvas AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So we kind of have a sense of what what she thinks is wrong with the world, the affliction force. We live in a a machine-like world that is turning us into machine-like creatures. And I want to talk about how she thought we should respond to that. And the most important thing here, I think, is her call to attend to the world, to pay attention to the world and other people. What did that mean to her? Because again, attention is one of those words that everyone thinks they understand and everyone more or less does. But she meant something very specific and very intense (laughs) when she talked about attention. And something quite different from what we understand by it. In fact, I mentioned in the book that William James in his Elements of Psychology famously remarks that everybody knows what we mean by attention. Simone Weil would correct him and say, in fact, you don't understand what attention is. Let me tell you what it is. You're right that in many ways, affliction or her writings on affliction offer a diagnosis of the human condition. That's a terrific way of putting it, Sean. But she's not content with a diagnosis. She's seeking a prescription, some kind of cure for this human condition. And one of the cures, it's not the only one, but one of the cures is the exercise of attention. Now, when we think of attention, we think of, for example, I'm looking at you right now on the screen, and if you were talking, I would be right now bracketing my eyes on you, Sean, and cupping my chin in my hand and giving you every indication that I'm focusing on you and only you. But in fact, what I'm doing is performative. Here I am thinking that I need to let Sean know that I am paying attention to him. 
that were engaged in this exchange of, of a kind of social currency. And that's not at all what Simone Weil understood by attention. By attention, she actually understands a kind of vacancy and a vacancy that entails a kind of patience. Think of the French verb, attendre. It means to be patient. And that's where attention comes from. To attend to somebody else for Simone Weil means to wait for somebody else. To wait for somebody else to present himself or herself fully to you. But in order for that person to do so, somebody outside of yourself, what is so terribly important is to suppress your own self, is to suppress what Iris Murdoch, one of Simone Weil's great admirers, called the fat, relentless ego. That we can only attend to the world when we stop attending to ourselves. And that's why she thought and she wrote, I don't know if I can quote her verbatim, that attention is the purest and the rarest form of generosity. It's when we give ourselves completely to another person. And we can only do that if we put aside our own person, our own self. And this is extraordinarily difficult. It's the realization that something other than yourself is real. And on the one hand, it sounds obvious. Well, of course I, I realize that. But in fact, we don't. I don't. I can insist until the cows come home that I realize that everything I'm looking at right now at this window, my conversation with you, you yourself, that all of these things are real. But of course, all of these things are being mediated by me. And that's the problem, according to Vey. So is this what she meant by this idea of decreation? This came up in a recent conversation that I had on the show about the art of listening with Kate Murphy, a really great writer and reporter. And the way I described it to her was to say that it's something like emptying ourselves of ourselves. And I wasn't quite sure if I captured it correctly or not, but it sounds like I wasn't. It sounds like this is exactly what Simone Weil meant by this idea of de-creation, that we have to do just this in order to truly attend to another human being. Decreation can mean a couple of things, I think, Sean. The way that Simone Weil uses it is in a religious and a theological sense. She was on the cusp of converting to Catholicism for the last three, four years of her life. And there were certain things that held her back. But she was writing a great deal, especially in her journal, about her relationship with God. And she makes the claim, and this is very simplistic, it's actually a very subtle 
and unsettling analysis that she provides that God, in bringing forth human beings, had to retire from the world. He had to fold in on himself in order to create this space, if you will, for his creation. And they believed that it was our task, or at the very least, it was her task, to return God's love for us with her love for God by folding in on herself in order to return the space that God gave her back to God. And it is a mother theologian. I do know, though, that this is a vexed subject among those vase scholars who discuss her theology and her religious thought. And so, for Vey, decreation can only be understood if you, too, believe in God, a Catholic God, a Christian God. Now, but there's a way of seeing it that's suggested by Iris Murdoch, and she translates uh, decreation, not as decreation, but as unselfing. Murdoch argues that all we have to do with they, and this is a cartoon version, and I'm sure Murdoch would be pissed as all hell if she heard me say this, that you simply add an O to, to God and you have good. That unselfing is the way in which we can achieve the good rather than God by removing our ego and focusing on others, and that by unselfing, we enable ourselves to see others as they relate to themselves rather than as they relate to me. That's the act of unselfing, according to Murdoch. How did Simone Weil's epiphany shape her conception of God? That's coming up after one more quick break. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. religious person. I've never been, but I, I've done a lot of evolving and, and 
in my own understanding of faith in God and what it could mean, what it might mean. And I've grown very sympathetic to Vey's conception of God, not as an idea, not as a story, certainly not as a web of doctrines and institutions, and certainly not as some final claim to truth, but this idea of God as a living possibility between properly attentive human beings. In some ways, that's the most profound truth of human life, and it can only be experienced. It is not an idea, but if you are lucky enough to have that experience, it's as real as anything. And I think that's what she was trying to communicate. That's certainly how she lived her life. It is, and it's how she lived her life. And it's it's important that you use the word experience because this was her experience in the second half of the 1930s. She had a series of, of epiphanies, one in Portugal, and then a second in Italy, in Florence, and then a third at a Benedictine abbey in France, at Solem. And each of these epiphanies or religious experiences made God real to Simone Weil. Now, I appreciate all that you've just said about how this is a living possibility. That's a very nice way of phrasing it. But as somebody who hasn't had such an experience as Weil has had, and somebody who is an agnostic, I like Murdoch's variation, that rather than God being present in our lives, the good is present in our lives. It's there. And we have to keep in mind that Murdoch, like Simone Weil, at least before Weil turns to religion towards the end of her life, that they are both Platonists, and they believe in the reality of goodness, not just as an everyday phenomenon, but as something that exists apart from the everyday. The ego. There's this wonderful line of hers that I had not encountered until I saw it in your book, where she says that, and now I'm quoting, the great human era is to reason in place of finding out. And what gets in the way of finding out is ourselves. Right? We don't, very often, we don't really want to find out what there is to know about the world or to even see what's right in front of our noses. We, we have our own ideas about the world. We have our own filter. And often, unthinkingly, we're interested only in affirming that. And to the extent we're doing that, we're not, not only are we not really thinking, but we're not paying attention. And what ends up happening in the social and political world is we, give ourselves over to one ideology or another, and then whatever intelligence we have ends up being devoted to reinforcing and justifying that that ideology. And this is one of the reasons why she hated political parties, that once you become a partisan, you stop thinking, you stop paying attention, and you become a member of a tribe, a member of a team. And it's, it's inherently a defensive kind of crouch. And so long as that's where you are, you're not going to see someone for who they are. You're not going to be able to see past that kind of superficial gloss. And a lot of harm and a lot of violence and a lot of suffering comes about in the world because of that peculiar kind of blindness that she was clearly allergic to and protesting against. 
she actually wrote a position paper on the abolition of political parties. It was one of the many papers that she wrote, but were not read by Charles de Gaulle when Simone Weil was an analyst with the Free French in London during the last months of her life in late 1942 and early 1943. And there's a tendency to think, oh, she's just being provocative when she insists on the abolition of political parties. But in fact, it's not at all a provocation. She truly believed <laughs> that political parties, for reasons that you've just given us, are a hindrance, not a help, to living our lives the way that they ought to be led. And this is something that always captures me about Vey's writings as well as her life. And I write about this as well in the book, Sean, that so much of what she either wrote or did in her life was impractical. For example, how do I go about applying her conception of attention in my classroom? How do I even grade <laughs> attention the way that Simone Weil sought to do with her students? Or how does one actually abolish political parties in a pluralist society? Or, for example, there was her remarkable notion of a nurse's brigade. She was hawking to anybody who would listen in 1940, 41, 42, for the creation of, of nurses, of nurse brigades, who would be parachuted over battlefields in white uniforms, unarmed, in order to deliver medical attention to the wounded on the field. And it seems that this is one of the few papers that, by Vey, that de Gaulle did read. And his famous response was, elle est folle. She's crazy. But what I try to argue in the book is that she's crazy like a fox. She understood precisely what it was she was proposing, that it wasn't a matter really of helping the wounded because the nurses would get only the scantiest of training before being dropped over the battlefield. Instead, it was a gesture. It was a gesture to the world and to the Germans that people are willing to die on behalf of the good as well as die on behalf of its opposite. And so impractical, yes, but important, even more so. But it was also about taking action right now. You know, I, if I may quote you, you write, in a society riven by polarization, when we see someone on the other side, we do not distinguish between that person and our hatred. They are one and the same, Right. And that's what happens when we're seeing ourselves and not someone else. And to me, that is so true. And, and one thing I, I definitely share with they is a contempt for the thought-destroying force of mass media in particular, especially today, which as you talk about it, it polarizes and it homogenizes at the same time, such that people are encouraged not to think, but to take sides. 
not to see, but to affirm. And in some ways, this outcome is unavoidable in an age of mass communication, right? The world we're expected to understand is so big, our engagement with it and other people is so mediated. We almost have to reduce it to a graspable caricature. But when we do that, we slowly stop paying attention or we end up with a deeply disfigured image of attention. And I think this is one of the reasons our mutual hero, Albert Camus, so admired they. His concern, and I think her concern, was that ideas and abstractions were, were supplanting people and immediate experience. And this is one of the reasons why I felt such attraction to they and Camus. They're both on the political left, but they were so intensely anti-totalitarian. And it's why they, they detested both fascism and communism. And they saw the ideologues and the revolutionaries as the ones most eager to slaughter the present in service of some imaginary future. Right? There were people who weren't really attending to the present in that way because they were willing to butcher the present, to butcher human beings in defense of some imaginary future <laughs> world. But that's, you can't live like that. That's the road to, to nihilism, really. It is nihilism, actually. I couldn't agree more with what you've just said, Sean. Both of them were on the left, as was George Orwell, who in so many ways resembles both Camus and Simone Weil. But they were mavericks. Many on the left distrusted all three of them, and for good reason, because they would not toe the line. In certain ways, both Camus and Weil were more sympathetic to the anarchists and then they were to the socialists and to the traditional parties on the left, not to mention the communists. It's not an accident that Simone Weil joined an anarchist brigade during the Spanish Civil War. And it's not an accident that Camus wrote articles for free for anarcho-syndicalist newspapers in France, reassuring their editors that this is where his heart was with their movement and not with socialism, much less communism. And both of them insisted upon the importance of thinking. You know, I can't help, and I think we might have discussed this when we were last together to talk about Camus, but there's a point in his life after he's finished with his first cycle of books that he called the cycle of the absurd. And it's in 19, late 1941, early 1942. Actually, it's later than that. It's in late 42, after France is completely occupied by the Germans when the Allied forces invade North Africa. And Camus, who's in France at that point, finds himself trapped and he has to make choices. And he realizes that everything he had written in the cycle of the absurd was nothing more than a diagnosis that in some way it taught nothing absurdity, that he needed to do something else. And in his journal, he writes, what would the world say to a thinker who tells the world, I got it wrong. I have to start from scratch. And this is what he more or less does in his next cycle of works. The cycle 
of resistance or rebellion. It's at that point that he joins the resistance because he kept thinking. And this is what they did to the very end of her life. When she wanted to go to France, they, <laughs> the resistance networks wouldn't allow her to come back to France. She got as far as London. And after she quits the Free French Movement, out of frustration because her papers were not having an impact and nobody took her nurse's plan seriously, she collapses and she has tuberculosis, just like Orwell, just like Camus. She's hospitalized and she then limits her diet to the same amount of calories that people in France have been reduced to by the German occupation. And while she's in her hospital bed, Sean, when the nurses would come to treat her, she always asked them, how much time today did you devote to thinking? This was for her the human activity. And thinking, as she understood it, is as hard as paying attention as she understood it. It's a terribly difficult thing. Yeah, I mean, she basically starved herself to death. She did. And, you know, that too remains controversial, whether she committed suicide or whether she decided to decreate herself or whether she really, in fact, intended to die. It's, we don't know. We'll never know. I mean, in some ways, it doesn't matter. She put herself in mortal peril out of, out of solidarity, whether or not she was, whatever her intention was, who knows? It doesn't matter. I think you're right. I think we have to understand it's a work of solidarity and then certain consequences followed. It's no surprise that Camus, no less, called Bay the only great spirit of our age. I mean, that, <laughs> and this is why. I mean, it's no less surprising that when Camus received the Nobel Prize um, and he was in Stockholm to receive the prize and to give his, his address, that there was a press conference the day after or the day before, I can't recall, and he was asked by one of the reporters which friends had been the most important to him. And he says, well, there are two. One is René Char, the French poet with whom Camus was extremely close. And then the other is Simone Weil. And then the reporter replied, but Simone Weil is dead. And Camus' reply, in essence, was, death doesn't get in the way of friendship. I, I love that you, you go here at the end of your book. Because I find myself in a similar position every time I'm thinking about Vey or reading Vey. I think most of us, almost all of us, have learned how to live with our contradictions, <laughs> which is to say we have learned how to ignore the ways in which we fail to live in alignment with our principles. And this is a woman who absolutely refused to do that. And I realize even in this conversation, I'm talking about Vey as though she's some kind of superhero. <laughs> but to me, she kind of was. I have always thought of her as a kind of moral genius of the sort we just don't see very often in this world. And the combination, not just of her absolutely first-rate intellect, but also the intensity and rigor of her commitment to living her ideals. Again, you mentioned Iris Murdoch a bunch, right? She... In the words of Murdoch, to read Vey is to be reminded of a standard. <laughs> and she is someone before whom I feel almost embarrassed. 
because that is a standard I cannot meet and I will never meet. But I'm thankful that someone like her is possible <laughs> in this world as, as a model and a teacher, if nothing less. I agree with you. I mean, I also think of the words of Simone Petremont, her biographer and her friend, who wrote, who would not feel ashamed of themselves when standing next to they? And I've written a number of books on a number of people, all of whom I admire. I wouldn't write books on them if I did not admire them. And of all of those individuals, I would love to spend time in their company, be it Denny Diderot, be it Jean-Jacques Rousseau, be it David Hume, be it James Boswell, be it Albert Camus, Catherine the Great. But when it comes to Simone Weil, I don't know if I want to have a beer with her or go bowling with her. She terrifies me. She embodies a standard that we require, but that we should not whip ourselves for failing to live up to, because at the end of the day, they herself cannot live up to it. Robert, I have to ask you, uh, before I let you go, what do you think she would be devoting herself to today if she were still alive? Where would Simone Weil be? What would she be doing? Who would she be defending, maybe, is really what I'm asking. She would be defending my children. She would be defending one of my children who identifies as trans. She would be defending both of my children who have to live or who face the prospect of living in a world that is becoming unlivable thanks to us. I think she would be deeply engaged in environmental causes. I think she would be deeply engaged in humanitarian causes. I think she would be as, as difficult to live with as she defends those causes, as she was difficult to live with in her own time. But I think that the presence of a Simone Weil today would be no less welcome than what she offered to her contemporaries. Once again, she was a standard. Robert, I adore you. I treasure all of our conversations. And it's no accident you and I have a lot of shared admiration for some of the same thinkers. You know, I can only speak for myself, but. As I've said, Camus and, and Vey are, are philosophical heroes to me for different reasons, and for slightly different reasons, I should say. And if I was smarter and better, <laughs> I'd exemplify what they exemplified. But alas, I'm not them. But it's a delight to share their ideas with other people. And I thank you for helping me to do it. I can't tell you how much I... Um... I prize your conversation, your insights. You really do often say things so much better than I do. And you make me think again about things that I thought I understood and I don't. So thanks for this lesson in modesty. It means a lot. Well, that's about the highest compliment anyone has paid me on the show. So thank you very much for that. Also to anyone listening, if you want to know more about Simone Weil, and of course you do, 
go get Robert's terrific book. It's called The Subversive Simone Bay. And I read the whole thing last week. It is not a long book. It is a very easy read and it is eminently readable. So I give it my highest recommendation. Robert Zareski, thank you, sir, for coming back in to talk to us. And thank you, Sean. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode, Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. This was a really special episode for me. As you can tell, Simone Bay really is a hero of mine, and I hope you dug it as much as I did. As always, let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayarea@vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please, please share it with your friends and your family on all the socials. That stuff really helps. New episodes drop on Mondays and Thursdays. Listen and subscribe.